Hey everyone, welcome to Psychology with my wife. I'm the wife. And I'm the psychology student. Welcome to episode five. Nice. <laughs> almost there. No. Almost Almost where? <laughs> <laughs> to finishing 10 episodes? I don't know. <laughs> almost somewhere. Yes. That's the best way to gauge your life. <laughs> almost nowhere. <laughs> Someone asks how something is going. Almost done, almost there, almost ready. You don't need to be specific what you're referring to. <laughs> almost. Yeah. So close. No accountability. <laughs> On the right track. That's me when someone asks me like how an assignment's going. <laughs> At school. <laughs> almost uh almost started. Almost done. Who cares? Even if I do finish it, I always say it's like, oh. Well, I'm almost done kind of thing because I don't want to seem like I'm a keener or anything, right? No, you just don't want your classmates to know that they're behind. Yeah. <laughs> Julian's just out there like, oh, yeah, haven't even started it yet. Meanwhile, submitted it early. And his classmates are like, oh, okay, cool. We're all in this together. <laughs> no, you're not in it together. When your classmates tell you they haven't started something and not to worry because everyone else is in the same boat, Get your assignment done. <laughs> You're not in the same boat. They got it done early. They're getting A pluses. And you're going to be crying. <laughs> Rant. <laughs> it was maybe a little too intense, but that's what I always tell. Not like that, but to the students that I would be the teaching assistant for. Like, just... Get it done. Don't create that environment and camaraderie around like, oh, it's okay. We all suck. <laughs> like, no, build each other up and support each other to get your work started mm -hmm. and to get it done and submitted. It's way less stressful that way. So I got a, I got a guitar stand and hopefully, well, I have been playing since I've gotten it. I have been playing a lot more. So that's, that's good. I got some picks too. But it's just sitting right there out in the open because otherwise I have to take it out of its case. I have to set the case somewhere. <laughs> I have to go and grab <laughs> the capo. <laughs> so I'm going to do it. I have, I'm going to say 10% of country roads done. Learned. Well, that kind of fits perfectly in the idea of actually starting something and working on it. Mm -hmm. I'll take credit. It was my idea to get the guitar stand. <laughs> but that's just because I think the guitar looks nice. So we need to show it off. It is a nice guitar. Decor. <laughs> <laughs> and now I get Julian sitting beside my desk playing, practicing on it while I'm working. So it's good ambiance. <laughs> I'm really excited because also kind of on the idea of getting things done, we got a couple of things, big things done for our wedding this last little bit. We've got our meals sorted. I have my first dress fitting coming up in like two weeks now. We just got my wedding band like two exciting. days ago, which was super exciting. And mom, she just sent out all of our invites. So everyone will have for sure received them by the time this episode comes out. 
but I love our imitations so much. I made them on Canva and I think they turned out absolutely beautifully and some wonderful ladies at uh, Red Bicycle in Lloydminster helped us get all of the to fix the coloring and some of the photos and get them printed really just in the best easiest way possible for us so it was wonderful <laughs> they look good yeah all right let's dive into it today's episode we're going to be talking about learned helplessness learned helplessness is a situation in which an individual or an animal believes that a negative situation is unchangeable or inescapable okay and this phenomenon and experiments came from the interest of Martin Seligman on depression. So he was a sociologist, psychologist that was interested in what um, what really causes depression. And I don't think like his experiments were on dogs, and they were kind of a lucky discovery. What do you mean by a lucky discovery? Like he didn't go in there with like a hypothesis or something? He did. And this, his experiments that we're going to talk about here about learned helplessness came from, um, he, he started out classically conditioning dogs and he was trying to figure out why they would become depressed or whatever. And then he, seen this learned helplessness trait appear in them okay so that's how it kind of started is classic conditioning going to be relevant for the conversation we have today um yes not much of it but just the fact that this started the experiment started out um he would ring a bell and at the same time shock the dog and Obviously, the dogs, without being shocked, would kind of flinch when the bell rang. Mm-hmm. So that's um, where this learned helplessness came about, is that the dogs would kind of cower instead of actually trying to like, I don't know, like yip around or run or whatever, right? They mm-hmm. would just curl up. But was that as the experiment continued like i imagine the first couple of times the dogs were shocked they probably had like an aggressive kind of reaction to it yes yeah but um like i was saying is it was a lucky um occurrence that happened right the whole experiment was not to um what we're going to be talking about i guess okay if that makes sense (laughs) at all (laughs) Um, so after he found out that these dogs would be curling up in a ball, he put the dogs in a future experiment. He put the dogs in a box that had two sides with a barrier in the middle. One side, uh, they had like panels on the floor and one side would shock the dog 
and all they had to do to escape the shock was jump over the barrier into the side that did not shock them. Mm-hmm. What they found is that the dogs that were conditioned with the bells would not jump over the barrier but made and made no attempts to avoid the shocks. And this this discovery is why um where learned helplessness came from. So they had three groups of dogs. Group one, the dogs were strapped into a harness for a little and then released. So um, for part of the their experiment, they couldn't do anything about the shocks, but then they could. The second group, um, they were strapped into the same harness and given electric shocks that could be turned off by pressing a button with their nose. The third group of dogs received shocks as the same shocks as the second group, but they were not able to control it. And the box I was talking about before, I called it a shuttle box. And like before, one side produced an electric shock, and they would have to jump to the other side. What they found was that dogs in groups one and two both jumped over the barrier. The dogs in group three stayed in the shocking square and dealt with the shocks. So, yes, they were doing experiments <laughs> and all that. But it's just interesting. And this, um, I think it was late 60s is when this experiment occurred. To me, I don't think I could shock an, a dog as part of an experiment. Yeah, like I feel like this is probably a little bit controversial because there are a lot of people who will use like shock collars mm-hmm. on their dogs to like train them in different ways or they constantly have one on them to keep them within the boundaries of their like home or their farm. So I guess I'm wondering what the shock of this experiment is like compared to what the shocks are like the intensity of the shocks mm-hmm. in the experiment versus the kind of you know easily accessible shock collars and things on the market i would assume that it would be a similar mm-hmm. shock obviously i don't think it's like permanently harming the dogs i guess besides mentally <laughs> yeah i think that's where i just really struggle with the idea of experimenting with animals who aren't able to Mm -hmm. consent. It's one thing to do experiments with people when they're able to consent or with animals when there's no potential harm that's going to come Mm -hmm. to them from the experiment. And I know some people might be like, well, the harm, like it's not permanently damaging them, the shocks or, you know, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. Like, if someone put me in that experiment and I didn't know what was going on, like, that would have lifelong impacts on me for sure. And dogs are smart and have really great memories. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure that participating in this kind of experiment would have really damaged them. Yeah, actually, I I didn't look that up, but I wonder how, what the dogs were like after. Mm -hmm. Because you, like, those rescue dogs, they lived through traumatic experiences and they're like you can tell that they've been they've been hit and stuff like that right Mm -hmm. and of course i guess it depends you know for how long were they in this experiment how many shocks did each dog receive because maybe if it was just you know two to three shocks well okay 
weird experience for them, uncomfortable experience. Mm -hmm. But it's like maybe won't be as long term or impacting. But if they were receiving like, you know, 25, 50 Mm -hmm. shocks or more, like that would be, I think, devastating. Well, the dogs developed an expectation that they couldn't do anything about the shocks. So I'm guessing it was more than three times. Yeah, that must have been. Yeah, that would have to be a lot of shocks to mm-hmm. actually instill that the idea. It's painful. Of it's things. not like I don't know. It would be a different example. Well, Something, irritating. It's, yeah. it's painful, not just irritating. Yes. Like irritating yeah. would be every time you say a certain word on the podcast, I flick you with my pen. <laughs> like, yeah. It might be a little bit annoying, and it might also, in a way, help you not say that word (laughs) or something but it's not painful painful would be like every time you say something i stab you with the tip of a knife or something in your leg (laughs) yes yeah poor dogs poor dogs we love doggies so um this third dog has learned helplessness and although this happened in the 60s there's been new studies that improved it, but it is something that's, it is, it's not something that's questioned really. We know what happens. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens in humans. So I actually found um, a video on YouTube. It's from the 90s, and I'm going to put the link in the bio because I was actually quite in, interested in the video, and it's only about six minutes long. But a teacher induced learned helplessness in students in her, I'm assuming, psychology class. So uh, the teacher used three anagrams, and that's like words you rearrange and form another word, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, she, and she split the classroom into two groups. One half, they had the first two anagrams were impossible to solve. Okay. The other half, they were extremely easy. Mm-hmm. These are just the first two. And then the th- um, the class went through the questions and they had to raise their hand when they um, solved the anagram. So you obviously had one half of the class and I think the first one was like bat. So they switched to the tab and they put their hand up and it was like five seconds in the whole half the class. Had it completed the other half, they didn't solve it. Not a single hand went up. And then she. So sorry, just to confirm, these students all thought they had the same anagrams in each yes, group. Yes. Wow. Okay. So then, she said, "Okay, even though you guys can't solve it, let's move on to the next one. Maybe you can get this one." Mm-hmm. So they did. <laughs> <laughs> Again, they had half the class, and you could see now the half that didn't that had the impossible anagrams was looking at the other half. Oh my God, why can't I figure? Why can they figure it out? And they did that. And she's like, okay, we'll move on to the the third one now. And the third one was the same for both groups. But you can see in the half of the classroom that had the easy words first, they had a um, less difficult time solving the anagram. And then the side that had the impossible ones had still had trouble with the same anagram. 
because they just already had this sense of like, ugh, they're smarter than us. Like, we know this is going to be harder for us. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I wouldn't say directly related to the other students, but they themselves believed that they couldn't solve, I guess, as well. Okay. Yeah. So, basically, the, the teacher taught them learned helplessness. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll, we'll circle back at the end of the episode here. Because um, this example really relates to relationships and social settings, but we'll uh, we'll go into Selgman's theory a little more first. Wait, I just want to go back to that. So she only did the two sets of anagrams, though. Well, three rounds. There was three anagrams. Two. One group had two hard ones. The other had two easy. The third one was the same. Okay. Right? And then one half that had the easy ones was still able to solve the anagram. The other half that had the difficult ones had more trouble. Okay, but it was three, like, separate rounds then. So, like, they each got one anagram. One solved it. One didn't. Then they got the next round of anagrams. One solved it. One didn't. Mm -hmm. Then they got the third round. One solved it. One didn't. Yeah. Okay. That needed to be clear because, to me... It sounded like it was just two rounds. One, they didn't solve. And then the next one, they were able to solve it. Because it's like that wouldn't... I don't see how doing one round of not solving something would then instantly make someone feel like, oh, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess it would be different for everyone, but it, it has to be learned, right? So. Okay. That's a good point, though. Um, this, so the first thing I thought of, and Seligman talks about this in his book, but um, this can this can happen with smokers trying to quit, and I, I figured this would be relevant to your work. <laughs> so the way it would apply to a smoker is that the first time. I wouldn't say excited, but confident that they can quit smoking. They want to quit smoking, and they really believe, I can do this. Then they fail and start smoking again. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, they're like, oh, I can't do this anymore. I need to quit smoking. So they do it again, and then three or four times later, they unsuccessfully quit smoking um, their confidence is like they're just gonna give up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that makes sense. So. Yeah, for sure. With my work, we just did some focus groups with adult, heavy adult smokers, and that was definitely one of the main themes that came up from it. Is that these people have tried to quit so many times. And they just feel this sense of hopelessness and lack confidence in their ability to quit. They feel like they've tried everything on the market from, you know, nicotine replacement therapies to actual therapy to lasering to medication to the patch, reading books, (laughs) like you (laughs) name it. They feel like they've done everything and... They definitely do have, yeah, you're right, this kind of 
learned hopelessness where they just lack that confidence in their ability to quit. And they feel very isolated, at least for in this circumstance, because it feels like a lot of other people are able to quit smoking around them. Like lots of them, you know, would try to quit with friends or in groups and maybe other people in those um, groups were able to quit, but they still haven't been. And so it really feels like it's something isolated with Mm -hmm. them. And they're like the last person on earth who hasn't been able to quit smoking yet. Mm -hmm. And go into this soon here, but part of that learned helplessness is a certain pessimism that's like, transfers over to a lot of other areas of your mm-hmm. life and then it you internalize it but um yeah like you're just saying is that like even though you want to quit willpower usually isn't enough and um, learned helplessness is like the collapse of problem solving strategies or the avoidance of challenges and that's a trait of learned helplessness mm-hmm. so that's why it's difficult You can't just tell someone like, hey, bad, stop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that's the problem. People do that. And that's actually what um, the project that I'm on at work right now is about, is the fact that so many cessation campaigns who are supposed to be helping people to quit smoking or helping them on their quitting journey are very aggressive and negative and they further shame and isolate the smoker which is not helpful and not effective and you know that's a method that maybe worked a little bit the scare tactics Mm -hmm. in like the 90s but that's not what people want anymore it's really clear from the focus groups that we've done that people want to have campaigns that are empathetic and compassionate and supportive of their journey and help to build up their confidence and self-esteem so yeah no definitely and then like um i was kind of like you have the nicotine therapy or whatever you call it the patches and stuff Mm -hmm. right even people that try that you would make sense that you start out with a high nicotine slowly lower so you don't have you have less um withdrawals right but still people fail using that and that just shows that it's the mind there's still the mindset there of the behavior they have right so it didn't increase their problem solving or wanting to complete the challenge right so yeah well there's just so much associated with it like it's not just the nicotine it's Mm -hmm. like we've talked about this in the an influential generation episode that Julian was on with me, the first episode of that podcast. We'll put the link below if people want to listen to it as well. But in that one, we talked a little bit about the helplessness that people feel in there and that you felt a little bit in your quit smoking journey because there's just so much more that's involved when you're trying to quit smoking. Like there's the nicotine addiction, but you talked in that episode about the routine, right? Mm -hmm. And people talked about that a lot in the focus groups as well. The routines that they have that the cigarette breaks are, you know, built into their daily habits Mm -hmm. and their daily routines and the stress release. And of course, like the actual 
movements associated with smoking the community the environments like there's just so much involved yeah well most of addiction not just smoking is like the drugs out of your system i can't remember what it is for nicotine do you do you know it's not i don't know 24 hours something something like that i can't remember if it was just a chemical addiction once it's (laughs) out of your system you'd be okay right whereas like people want to smoke a year after they um, quit smoking. Obviously, it's a little less of a temptation, but they mm-hmm. still have that thought process in their head. Maybe you can disagree with this, but I thought it would be more effective to actually, um, if you were going to help the person, say, in therapy and stuff, it would be more helpful to change the belief in themselves, um, maybe enhance their problem-solving strategies, and help them take challenges head on rather than their belief they hold on smoking. What do you mean their belief they hold on smoking? Um, I'm, I'm thinking that like not just that they think smoking is bad. Obviously they know it's bad and um, that they want to quit. Um, where is I going here? I just lost my train of thought. I think I agree with what you're trying to get at. It's not... It's really about having changing their mindset in the way that they think about smoking currently as something that they need and it's a part of their life and Mm -hmm. it's their habits and it helps them cope with things and changing that mindset to create new habits. So one way that I have found that I, I tend to look at it is not trying to take something away when someone's trying to quit smoking, Mm -hmm. but replacing it or adding something new in so that you don't feel to the same degree the loss of the addiction, but you're, you're filling that space with something else, which is a challenge. Like in the focus groups, I, we talked about this idea a little bit and some people mentioned that it's really difficult to, you know, find that new habit that they want to spend their time with. Mm -hmm. They're like a smoke. Smoking is easy. A smoke break doesn't take much time. Like it's just quick. Whereas, you know, starting to exercise and doing different things like they're like, ah, that's harder. (laughs) It takes more time. (laughs) But if you add up the amount of smoke breaks during a day, you probably would find it doesn't take more time. Really? (laughs) No. Yeah. Yeah, This is definitely true. You can even go to the gym for 20 minutes and you'd be spending a third of the time at least. <laughs> um, yeah, so there, there's that. I think, in my opinion, addiction is mostly psychological and it's not chemical. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously you have the, um, the other element of it that some people's temperaments or genetics, you're more likely to... Susceptible to addiction, I guess. Which Julian has very strong opinions about people (laughs) who say that people um, have like their genealogy and stuff makes them, their genetic makeup makes them more prone to addiction. Yes. I'll definitely go into another episode. It'll be the whole episode. (laughs) (laughs) You definitely could do a whole episode about that. Yeah. But (laughs) so to continue on. We're just talking about solutions to learned helplessness. 
Um, you would think that Martin Seligman, Seligman, yeah, <laughs> what his whole career would be shaped around this learned helplessness, but he's seen it and he's like, how can I actually help people? I'm going to study the opposite side of the coin here. And he coined a term called learned optimism. Mm, love it. The theory hinges on individuals having a optimistic mindset and those with a pessimistic mindset. And the optimists were the people that were the most resistant to helplessness. The optimists were compared to pessimists in three, char- three categories. So there is permanence, pervasiveness, and personalization. The first one, permanence, is optimistic people believe that bad events are temporary, but positive events are permanent. The second one, pervasiveness. Optimistic individuals compartmentalize <laughs> helplessness and allow good events to influence other parts of their life. I kind of talked about that a little more. Is it, it uh, helplessness goes everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the third one, personalization. Optimists blame negative events on outside causes and internalize positive events. So there's actually, it's not exactly this, but there's a thing called actor-observer bias. Okay. What is that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) fancy ask. Uh, A person blames negative experiences on external influence. But for others, it's due to internal influence. Uh, example is two employees had to fly in somewhere for a conference. The, the person the, um, that thinks that them being tired and not doing good is due to the jet lag from the flight. And then they look at the other person not doing bad. It's like, oh, they're incompetent. They're lazy mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for most of this episode now, we're going to talk about how we can become an optimist. All right. And go away from our pessimistic attitudes. Um, but, but you kind of mentioned, to having a support group. And I think that was the first thing that came to my mind is, although, like you said, they still feel like they were the ones in the support group, maybe it might be helpful to have like an accountability partner that reminds them of um, what they want to do and, but more so who they are as a person. They're like, it's kind of like their, their cheerleader squad. (laughs) Yeah. That was something that was brought up in the focus groups is wanting to have that support community, but not necessarily with the people that are actually close in your life. So mm. kind of an online community. They Some of them wanted there to be like just an online forum where people mm-hmm. could talk with others. Some suggested like a, a dating app for people who want to quit smoking, but okay. like not actually a dating yeah. app, but just like an application that people could go on who need want to connect with other people who are trying to quit smoking mm-hmm. that like from all around the world that they could just like send positive messages back and forth with or you know 
talk about the challenges they've been going through, but mm-hmm. it's not someone directly in their life because a lot of people find it really challenging, you know, this idea of learned helplessness. You know, they have this sense of helplessness in themselves and lack confidence, which can make them feel embarrassed in front of their peers. Mm-hmm. Like they don't want yeah. to que- keep um, unsuccessfully attempting to quit in front of these people who are close to them. So sometimes a lot of people make quit attempts in secret. And so this would be a way for them to get support outside of their normal social circles. Right. Yeah. And I don't know if it would be like stigmatized. Stigmatized? Yes. Because there's like this just on the side of being like strong and capable of doing things. Right. And they kind of stigmatize themselves. Well, not, you don't you know what I mean? Is that no. they think that they're um weak in their social circles and whether the other people believe it or not, that's a belief they hold. Yeah, yeah. It I think it does go both ways a lot of the time there. I think you're right that they at times maybe they're creating they're they're mm-hmm. emphasizing the stigma on themselves from mm-hmm. their own social circles. But you know, I think it definitely does exist that if you've known someone and they've told you a million times they're going to quit and they never do, I think it's easy for people to start writing that off mm-hmm. and being like, oh, yeah, you're going to quit. Mm-hmm. Sure. When you, you hear that, too, and you're like, well, I'm just going to stop again. I'm going to stop trying or I'm going to stop expressing how I feel. That's why when I was thinking about this. It would be nice to that accountability buddy that they could remind you of times or ask you, make you think of times that you overcame um, other hardships Mm -hmm. because um, the second point, their pervasiveness is that optimistic individuals compartmentalize helplessness Mm. and allow positive events to go into other parts of their life. So that would be one way to like kind of change your whole mindset on it all. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there's actually any research on this, but I would say it is really important to have that like accountability, um, like frequently right off the bat when you first try compared to like further down the road. Cause that when you go through the withdrawals and stuff, like the thought that can come through your mind is that it's never ending and that, the effects are permanent kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have someone there to remind you when the, the withdrawals are the strongest, um, that you're thinking logically kind of mm-hmm. thing. I don't For know. Sure. Seligman did a, um, they used a college class, university class, and they taught freshmen uh, optimism, and they found that they were more, they were less likely to be depressed and have anxiety to court disorders yeah for sure i think um whether it's a course or whether it's just something that you know within support groups that already exist maybe needs to be integrated more better online videos Mm -hmm. about it there should be you know there's so many websites that have a lot of resources available to people who are on their quitting journeys and so maybe they're needs to just be more resources available to them on there. Try to change that narrative. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Oh, it, it makes sense to me. And that's, that is probably the point I was trying to make before about focusing on them and not the, the actual habit. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, that's the thing, right? For just so many things, if you have bad habits that you don't like and you want to stop <laughs> them mm-hmm. some of sometimes the easiest way to do that is just to work on building yourself up in other areas get some confidence allow it to pour into other areas of your life exactly <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why you should tackle smaller um, goals before the big ones mm. Just make your big goals into a bunch of small goals. They're attainable. Yep. That doesn't seem like it's all crumbling in one thing. It's only a tiny goal that crumbles. <laughs> exactly. Um, so he, he did make a note in his book that if you want to appear, to appear sympathetic to the troubles others are having, it's, you don't want to be super optimistic right off the bat. You want to do it once they have confidence and they understand that you're em- empathetic towards them. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. ineffective until you get to that point, he says. So, Well, I think like I completely agree with that. And the focus groups that I was a part of for work, we were using the focus groups to inform the development of a campaign by the Canadian Cancer Society that was to support people on mm-hmm. their quitting journeys and they actually really adopted like kind of just what he said there they really adopted that or attempted to adopt it in the messaging on the campaign um by you know constantly referring to quit attempts the quit journey and really making it seem like you don't have to quit right now like mm-hmm. in the campaign it's not like this is your one chance. Like you quit now, like do it, do it, do it, do mm-hmm. it. It was just like, how can we help you make a quit attempt? Right. Not how can we help you completely quit forever, but how can we support you to make an attempt to quit? Mm-hmm. Right. Seligman hmm. provided some answers to changing pessimism to optimism. And he borrowed Albert Ellis's model of ABCs, which you have adversity, beliefs, and consequences. Mm-hmm. So, um, for example, you have adversity. You're trying to quit smoking. Then you have a belief about that. A pessimist would say, I can never do this. It's too hard. I am weak. I can't do this. An optimist would say, I can do this. It'll be hard, but I have the support of my friends. Mm-hmm. So then it goes on to the, the third, the consequence of that belief. Pessimist, you give up and you don't quit smoking. The optimist would be, you continue to try quit smoking or you are successful in quitting. The whole idea of this ABC model is that in order to change the consequence you have to change that belief. And changing the beliefs makes it easy to see how the outlook um, can change in the rest of your life too. Mm-hmm. So how what he says to do is keep an ABC diary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yes. More diaries. <laughs> More diaries. And a lot of this, um, if you want to change yourself, you got to use some introspection. And I find it really useful is to write stuff down because just talking about stuff, it's kind of like a fleeting thought and mm-hmm. it doesn't stick with you usually. So it does make sense. I also like to audio record things. Mm. I find that really helpful. <laughs> Sometimes we'll be like laying in bed at nighttime, ready to go to bed, and then I'll have like a odd thought or something. Like my thesis will be like, oh, I need to remember to do this. So then I'll just like make an audio message on my phone to me. Mm-hmm. Because it's just easier than I can really ramble out what my thought process is and what like at that time Mm -hmm. and then go back to it the next day. Because sometimes if you just made like a small note to yourself, it doesn't really help you remember what you were thinking in that moment and where the kind of passion and drive was coming from. So I really like doing audio notes for things. Yeah, I agree with that. It's uh, I usually write notes and then you come back to the note like a month later you're like what was i actually thinking here i'm just gonna delete this now yeah (laughs) um so using some introspection once you are aware of your pessimistic belief there are two ways that you can deal with them the first distraction so you think of something else when you um feel the pessimistic thought or understand it's coming along Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they suggest in the book, (laughs) slamming the table and yelling, stop. That's the distraction? Yes. (laughs) Every time you have a bad thought, (laughs) which, (laughs) little cuckoo. He has an aggressive distraction. (laughs) (laughs) There can be way healthier alternatives to Mm -hmm. distract yourself from negative thoughts than leaning into aggression. He also said you can write stop on a note and look at the word stop. Okay, that's less aggressive. <laughs> or uh, like you've heard of the rubber band trick. Slap your, or slap the rubber Snapping band. Snapping it yeah. on your wrist. When you have the thought. Yeah, I also think that's an unhealthy habit. <laughs> why, why do you think that one's unhealthy? I don't know. I just don't think like if you're having a negative thought to then inflict a sense of pain on yourself mm. to get rid of a negative thought. Like why would you want to replace something negative with something negative right right that logic just doesn't work for me (laughs) what's his other option (laughs) um yeah well i was gonna say on that same note is grab an ice cube and squeeze it which i think is um different like we're talking about an irritation or (laughs) the ice cube is to like bring you like ground you Mm -hmm. in your thoughts right Mm -hmm. so that's the whole point. I agree with you there. The rubber band is a negative thing. Yeah. And then they said you're supposed to pair that um, with shifting your attention elsewhere. And it doesn't um, need to be um, what you want to think. But it's literally like, say, um, I'm like, oh, I can't do this assignment. I would slam the table and I'll stop <laughs> and then look at the color on my water bottle mm-hmm. immediately after. And that's how they said to distract yourself from that thought. Mm-hmm. And then it, after the moment, it'll go away. Can you imagine if every day 
as we're having like negative thoughts in our minds with our desks right next to each other, we both just like <laughs> are slamming our desks and screaming stop all day. Or doing this in public too. Like we're thinking about all of this in the circumstances of being basically like in the privacy of your own home. Mm-hmm. Like these aren't very good coping mechanisms if you're somewhere in public too. <laughs> Slam the cement. Yeah. Sidewalk. Um, the other one they said is um, tell yourself that you'll think of it later. So, yeah. <laughs> hmm. I I can't write this essay. Hmm. You know what? I'm going to think about how bad I am later. And then they said to write it down. And then they kind of loosely said that like, when you ruminate on a thought, that's all it is, is it's like trying to remind you of something. So if you write it down and then tell yourself you're going to think of it later, it'll get rid of the rumination. Hmm. Are you actually supposed to intentionally think about it later or are you, you're just tricking yourself? You're being like writing it down to think about later, but then you throw the note away and you don't think about it later. <laughs> I feel like that's what actually happens. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I guess they... I forgot to mention, you're supposed to tell yourself you'll think of it later, but state the time you're going to think about it. Oh. This is like, we did that one episode on delayed gratification. This is like delayed negativity or something. (laughs) I don't know. I don't love it for sure. So I'm not meaning to seem as if I completely don't love where they're trying to go with their theory. I definitely can understand that there are times when you're in a circumstance and you don't have the capacity right then to deal with negative thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so I do agree that there should be, you know, coping mechanisms to help you potentially deal with them later. I just don't know if I feel like the ones they have shared are perhaps the most effective but again i've never tried any of them so maybe someone who's listening has tried some of these methods and could let us know if they've ever had success at you know experiencing negative thoughts and then pushing them aside and actually dealing with them later not just Mm -hmm. pushing them to the side and burying them down to build up more yeah so good that you're a skeptic of it because they even know it's in their book that it's like there's the t- of the two options distraction is only temporary and it doesn't do a lot for you yeah okay it's good. just like a quick fix kind of thing <laughs> the second one is disputation so providing an argument to that belief and the way i look at it is it's similar to cognitive behavioral therapy which is you're trying to change the thought, mm-hmm. right? And in another way too, it's kind of showing compassion for yourself. Mm-hmm. The pessimistic thought is usually something that about yourself. You internalize some aspect of your character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of, I'm guessing where they're going with this is if you're having a negative thought, like if I was, you know, sitting in our office working and for some reason I had a negative thought of like oh I think Julian's mad at me right now then I would just 
need to confront that negative thought and go like, why would Julian be mad at me right now? Like, mm -hmm. what's the possibility, the logic or reasonableness that Julian would be mad right now? If he is mad right now, how can we resolve it or something? Like just having that kind of logical conversation with yourself about the negativity. Is that what they're getting at? Yeah. And he adds to his ABCs, he adds D and E. Just disputation is D. <coughs> e is energization, which is basically um, stating how your thought has changed from a pessimistic to an optimistic belief. Mm. So like you said, um, you're kind of questioning why I would be mad at you. You would say, I originally thought that Julian was mad at me, but then I looked at it and I don't think he's mad at me because of this. Mm -hmm. So again, like acknowledging that you had a, Irrational belief. Mm -hmm. And then I, I, I think it builds upon each each time you do this. Mm -hmm. I mean, that makes sense. So the last thing I mentioned, we we're going to go back to relationships. Okay, let's do it. So we obviously know that learned optimism is actually quite practical in a lot of different areas. In relationships, I think it's really, um, really important. And it's like, it's something that's not usually looked at or understood. Like it would help understand gaslighting and, and trauma in relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so for example, my point. In an abusive relationship, a person, the victim, may stand up um, the first time to their abuser when they, when they hit them or verbally, emotionally abuse them, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I would think that most people would try to stand up for themselves or they would try to at least mm -hmm. with a degree of what they actually do, right? So the next time it happen, happens, are they more likely to stand up to them or <laughs> just like let it happen? Mm -hmm. so, no, obviously. They're not going to, they're less likely whether they actually do or not. And this is for everyone. It's kind of like your chances of being successful are way lower automatically. Well, it's just learned helplessness, right? Mm -hmm. That even if you stood up for yourself and it had no brought no con positive contribution or, or positive change, then you're gonna get used to that negativity. Unfortunately. Yes, and I can understand, obviously. Uh, to some extent, I have experienced this, um, but it's hard to be optimistic about things. We talked about one of the key um, characteristics of an optimist is compartmentalizing negative thoughts. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty hard to feel when you um, can't stand up to that person, it's hard to have confidence in other areas of your life. But part of like being gaslit and like understanding your trauma and stuff is kind of compartmentalizing that and realizing I can do this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I guess that starts with using your A, B, C, D, E. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I can also, in a less ex- extreme <laughs> example, I was thinking of sports teams. So you hey, have sports teams can be very extreme. <laughs> yeah, I guess they could be. Yes. <laughs> um, I was thinking learned helplessness is a team that loses two match matches before going into the final game of their the tournament. Mm. It's a lot harder to win that last game when <laughs> you've lost those two ones before. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the winners and the losers are separated. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, that just made me think of <laughs> in relation to sports. So Julian and I both grew up playing volleyball. And it just makes me think of, you know, there's three sets in a match. But you only go to the third set if one team, Mm -hmm. if both teams have won one of the first two sets. And so it's a lot better going into the third set if you won the second set. Mm -hmm. But if you won the first set and then you lost the second set and then you have to go into the third set, like it's a lot harder (laughs) because you're kind of feeling down about it and they're coming right off the wind going to the third set and the third set is shorter and so it's just really intense so I definitely can see that playing a pretty significant role in sports Mm -hmm. well and and from what I've coached um like at Lakeland um U16 wrestlers it as from a coach's perspective I thought it was more impressive to see my team lose some matches and then win one when you can clearly see that they are discouraged mm-hmm. and they brought themselves together. For sure. So you can see that. You can see that turning point. It's like, yes, I actually did something. And I think that's your job as a coach is to motivate them to um, motivate them or lead them towards having optimism, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I guess uh, the other side of the coin too you have teams that go on runs, right? So like that's the team, that's the winning, the winners, right? Is that they have complete optimism <laughs> and they just keep winning because mm-hmm. they believe it, right? Well, they have complete optimism and then also people then going against them, you know, go into the game feeling like, uh, what's even the point of this game? Mm-hmm. Like they're the winner. We know they're the league champions. They haven't lost in you know, two years or something. So there's really that mindset at play for both teams in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's why I think it's a challenge in itself. I really like sports for that reason. Is it not for the, the physical side of it, but the mental side is it really trains your mind to um, not be pessimistic when you're facing challenges. Mm -hmm. So like, Learned helplessness is avoiding challenges and not having problem-solving skills or like a deterioration of them. So when you in the moment, it's easy to say before you're in the moment that you'll be able to do something. But when you're in the moment, you kind of forget what to do. You often shut down. Yeah. So practicing that and practice overcoming that really helps you, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. <laughs> but... That's all we have for today. Okay, well, feels like we covered a lot. We learned we learned all about learned helplessness, but also 
I think the great part of the conversation was learning a little bit about learned optimism yes. and how you can counteract those circumstances in which you're feeling helpless or having negative, pervasive negative thoughts. Yes. Yeah. So obviously to more extent than we can go through it even in this episode, but I would look at some of his, his work and if you're really hardcore, do those ABCs. Yeah. <laughs> Implement this into your life. Mm-hmm. So if you have any topics that you'd like us to cover, uh, let us know over DM or send us an email. Or just comment on any of our social media as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, I guess you can. Yeah, send us a, a pub. Tell the world what you would like to hear from us. And yeah, you can follow us, of course, on all of our social media. You can find us at PWMW Podcast on everything. Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, the whole deal. And so if you are listening to this podcast through an audio version, we're available on all of the podcast platforms, but we also have a video version available on YouTube. And so if you would like to watch the conversation and see us here, (laughs) then you can definitely check that out. And we have some shorter clips and stuff posted on our YouTube channel as well. Yeah, and uh, if you do like our podcast, leave us a rating. It really helps us out, and especially because we're just starting. We need those ratings. Yeah, absolutely. That would be amazing if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on, and especially a review beyond just stars, but adding a comment, maybe mm-hmm. a comment on something that you enjoyed in the podcast. That would be so amazing, and we would appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah, so we will be posting every Tuesday. So make sure you hit subscribe, follow, and set that auto download. (laughs) And we will see you in our next episode. Sounds good. See ya. Bye.